1: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned.
2: I'm Preet Bharara. A lot of the characters who I've admired who stood against corrupt or inefficient or broken systems are people who don't actually have a great neediness. Like they didn't need me to write a book about them. That's Michael Lewis. He's the author
0: of 15 books, including The Big Short, Moneyball, and Liar's Poker. His most recent book is called The Fifth Risk. Once described as a love letter to federal employees, the book wrestles with the risks we face when the government is run by people who don't understand or don't want to understand how it works and how we depend on the mission-driven employees in the civil service to keep our government functioning and keep us all safe. I've been thinking about my conversation with Lewis in light of the congressional testimony we've recently heard from some truly upstanding and outstanding public servants. And I think it's time to revisit it. That's coming up. Stay tuned. So the big news, November 25th, was this decision that I'm getting a lot of questions about. And it was a decision from the D.C. District Court declaring that Don McGahn could not assert absolute immunity from testifying before Congress, which was a fairly extreme position taken by Trump's lawyers in this case. Judge Jackson wrote a 100-page-plus ruling uh, that says a lot of things and is very significant in terms of what she decided, unclear what it means going forward. Among other things, she uses some powerful and colorful language to address the arguments made by the president's team. Judge Jackson writes, for example, presidents are not kings. They do not have subjects bound by loyalty or blood whose destiny they are entitled to control. To be clear, she does understand and acknowledge that there is something called executive privilege. And that if and when Don McGahn comes to testify, he can assert executive privilege where appropriate. What that means and how that plays out with particular fights, given certain lines of inquiry, remains to be seen. So what does this mean for Don McGahn? Well, nothing in the near term, because as expected, the administration immediately appealed the decision, and it will take some time for the appeal to be heard, and then it could potentially go to the Supreme Court. I will point out, as some others have, that the timing of this is a little bit unfortunate, that it took Jerry Nadler, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, a few months to decide to press the challenge in court, which necessarily delayed this decision. And arguably, had he proceeded more swiftly to the court, we might have had this decision already in pocket and maybe even an appellate decision in pocket. It's a little odd to me how this may ultimately play out because this controversy surrounds testimony requested from Don McGahn with respect to the things that Bob Mueller was investigating and put in the report, namely ways in which Don McGahn may have been a witness to obstruction of justice by the president in connection with the Russia investigation. Well, that investigation has concluded. Bob Mueller testified some months ago and it doesn't seem like anyone had an appetite to proceed with respect to impeachment on the McGann testimony. So if and when the way is cleared for Don McGann to testify, it's a little bit old news. I think it's important and the Judiciary Committee should do its work. But I'm still trying to get my head around what ultimately happens if some months from now, after the impeachment proceeding with respect to Ukraine has finished, whether or not there are Mueller allegations contained in articles of impeachment, those could well be done and over and the trial even completed in the Senate before we ultimately see McGahn being forced to come testify before the House Judiciary Committee. So that's interesting. Now, what does it mean for other witnesses who are not involved in this particular litigation? I think there's a powerful statement from a particular judge that does not hold binding force on some of the other judges in other litigations trying to figure out whether other witnesses that have been called by committees in the House must testify. But I think it's a good harbinger of what those other judges might find. Typically, you see Kellyanne Conway, advisor to the president, denigrate this judge's opinion by saying it's an Obama judge. But my sense is, even though the Department of Justice, through many presidents of both parties, have had a policy and a practice of asserting broad ability not to respond to congressional subpoenas, that in the current day and age, given what's at stake, and given, I think, the more extreme rhetoric and positions taken by the Trump administration, you'll find additional judges ruling that executive privilege exists, it can be asserted when appropriate. It doesn't mean you can just thumb your nose at Congress altogether. It's of a piece with something that's, that's not quite the same issue, but I think shows the same sort of belligerence on the part of the administration that we've talked about before. The administration's view as to how broadly immune the president and his people are from any kind of inquiry or oversight whatsoever. And obviously the example I'm thinking of, which I'm reminded of when I look at Judge Jackson's opinion, is when Trump's lawyers argued in court that even if the president of the United States shot someone on Fifth Avenue, the DA's office could not even so much as investigate forget about indict but not even investigate and so you see in case after case after case including this one which has now reached a decision the president's lawyers are taking the extreme view not only can no one hold the president accountable no one can actually even make an inquiry no one can actually even conduct oversight no one can even actually bring people in to testify and test on a question-by-question basis privilege or some other basis for not answering the question and that judge Jackson says cannot stand because presidents are not kings (laughs)
1: Hey, Preet. My name is Mook, and I'm calling from just outside of Philadelphia. Roger Stone was found guilty on all seven counts that were brought against him, and I have a couple of questions for you about that. First one is, do you think he'll be pardoned, and if so, are there any possible negative implications for Trump in doing so? Second question, do you know if Stone faces any state legal challenges for which he could not be pardoned by the president? That's it. I'm a huge fan of the show, and uh, keep up the great work.
0: Thanks. Hey, thanks for your great question. Roger Stone was convicted. I think that's good news. I think that shows, among other things, that the rule of law still does matter from time to time. And in a courtroom, justice can still be had and accountability can still be achieved. So, on your question about whether or not he'll be pardoned, I think that's a real possibility. Donald Trump has shown that he doesn't care about the political fallout when you say, Will there be any negative implications for Trump? Generally speaking, because his pardon power authority is so broad and unreviewable. There's no legal consequence uh, really at all the consequences flow generally unless a pardon was bought and there was bribery involved in which case that i think would be a provable crime it's just the political fallout and donald trump doesn't seem to care about that and in fact with respect to some more controversial pardons that he has issued he gets some political backing from his base recently he pardoned edward gallagher navy seal who've been accused of war crimes and has gone so far as to say Uh, notwithstanding the controversy surrounding that, and notwithstanding that that controversy seems to have led to the termination of the Navy secretary who wanted to proceed with administrative proceedings against Gallagher, Trump says he wants Gallagher to campaign with him on the trail leading up to the 2020 election. So that's an example of Trump wielding the pardon power in, I think, a blatantly political way. So I I don't know what negative consequences there could be for him that he cares about. I think the chances of Roger Stone being pardoned improve, get more likely if Donald Trump is reelected. He still does I think face a little bit of a concern about what it means to pardon someone in the lead up to the election and maybe he doesn't want to lose votes over it but I do think that with respect to his base to paraphrase something that he has said Donald Trump could pardon someone in the middle of 5th Avenue and not lose any support. As for your second question does Stone face any state legal challenges you know there may be investigations that are going on but he has not been charged in any state it is true that if Roger Stone or anyone else is convicted in state court the ability to pardon that person or commute that person's sentence rests in the lap of the governor, not the president.
1: Hi, Preet. My name is Alice calling from Rockaway. I've been struggling this week to understand why President Trump would want to support servicemen who've committed atrocities and pardon people who've committed what their peers would say are inappropriate acts. And I can only come up with horrible theories like he is trying to form his own militia of people with no morality. Can you provide some other rationale for why he's doing these things? Thanks so much.
0: Alice, thanks for your question. I think it's a very difficult one to answer, and it requires getting into Donald Trump's head a little bit. And I guess we're all, in a way, over the last two to three years, have become armchair psychologists or uh, even lawyers who are getting into the game. You'll remember my guest, George Conway, as he discussed on the program, wrote an 11,000-word article on the fact that he believes Donald Trump has narcissistic personality disorder. Now, with respect to how he treats military service people, as I just mentioned in response to the question before yours, it seems that Donald Trump a little bit views the military as a political cohort. You know, traditionally, the military has been treated both by Democratic and Republican administrations very carefully and at arm's length in the sense that they are not involved in politics, they're not involved in partisan politics, and they make their judgments based on what's best for the national security of the United States of America. And from time to time, actually, presidents have appointed members of the opposing party as secretary of defense. And it seems like, with respect to Edward Gallagher and some other things, Trump is turning that principle on its head. The other thing I'll say about Trump's view, generally, of, of military force, which is ironic, given that we all know he avoided military service himself, on some what appears to be spurious claims of bone spurs in his foot. He seems to embrace the pomp and circumstance and show of force that the military provides. He seems to be fond of people who are autocratic around the world, who rely on the military for power. You'll remember that he was very enthusiastically in support of and decided to have a military parade to showcase the nation's weapons. That's something that floats Donald Trump's boat. And remember, with respect to this issue of condoning bad conduct, Donald Trump, we should remember, essentially campaigned on at least one plank of torture. Not only did he say that he didn't think waterboarding was bad, but he literally, deliberately, specifically campaigned on a platform that he would bring waterboarding back and much worse. So Donald Trump, I think, uniquely among recent presidents in modern times, views the military as something he can exploit for political purposes. I don't know that I would go as far as to agree with you that Donald Trump is trying to build some sort of separate militia. I'm not prepared to believe that yet. I don't think how he talks about the military is good. I don't think how he politicizes the military is good. I don't think how he says he knows more than all the generals combined, which he has said is good, but I don't think we're quite at the hellscape that you've described. You can also see this attitude that Donald Trump has with respect to any institution. He doesn't really have any lasting, sustainable respect or admiration for any institution. What he does have is support for individuals within an institution who seem to support him. And whether that's Fox News that he generally likes, but if there's one anchor who says something negative, he casts aspersions on that anchor and then questions the whole institution itself. Whatever he says about the military and supporting the troops in individual circumstances, if someone had the temerity like John McCain to say something adverse to the interests of the president of the United States, he attacks viciously and says he prefers war heroes who were not captured with respect to John McCain. With respect to Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who remains an official in the Trump administration, When he had the temerity to say something that was adverse to the interests of the president and did so in good conscience, he and his allies attacked that person too. So it's hard to square the view that he has support for the military, but then particular people who come forward, uh, who are decorated, who have given a lot for this country, who have been injured in the time of battle, Bob Mueller comes to mind as well. They are not spared his venom. to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever with supporters like you they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain
2: using code TUNED.
0: My guest this week is Michael Lewis. He's written 15 books that touch on themes of power, corruption, and pride. His newest book, The Fifth Risk, takes a closer look at our federal government and the people who dedicate their lives to civil service. Lewis writes about the process of transitioning information and procedures from one administration to another and is deeply disturbed by the Trump appointees who lack the interest, expertise, and willingness to learn about the responsibilities of leading federal agencies. Lewis and I talk about why indifference plays a role in the characters he chooses to write about, the unrecognized heroes of the federal workforce, how Trump is a trust-devouring machine, and the quality he admires most in people. My interview with Michael was originally recorded on December 13th, 2018. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Michael Lewis, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: A longtime fan, first-time caller, as they say. You've written a lot of books. I think you've, this is, you're up to 15. Is that right? Uh, you know,
2: I, don't, I never really count them. Well, we can I'll trust you on that.
0: My folks count it. And it's 15. And we're going to get to the book in a minute called The Fifth Risk. But I, I thought I'd ask you a broader question about sort of the body of your work. And I'm a huge fan of it. And I've read a lot of your books. And so thank you for your service to the public through your writing. But you've sort of written about corruption and malfeasance in multiple areas, in sports, in business, Wall Street, and in government. Is there, have you found through all the work you've done and investigation you've done that, that there's a difference in how things go wrong in the different areas and some things that are the same? Or how do you think about that? Are, are those distinct areas or not?
2: So I'm spitballing here because this isn't something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, That's perfect for a podcast. And, and, but the, what I'd say is in each case, you know, so i haven't really written about corruption in sports much I, but I mean I've written about you know, like inefficiencies and stupidity in sports is a little different yeah uh, but but I would say that as a rule, it is amazing how even the most corrupt people don't think of themselves as corrupt. so when I write about people who seem to me obviously villainous right and it seems obvious to any neutral reader that they're villainous, they themselves don't agree (laughs) and so it's not like there are a bunch of people in each sphere who are wandering around saying oh i'm going to make a lot of money being corrupt what happens instead is people just follow incentives i mean i think if there's like a pattern to what leads people to either both stupid behavior or corrupt behavior is that there's some little carrot out there that they're following and they just don't stop themselves and you know the, the run up to the financial crisis whatever laws were broken, and probably not enough laws were broken. I mean, it was really a case where an awful lot of stuff that happened that was awful was perfectly legal. But but there are people inside these big Wall Street banks who are doing unbelievably self-destructive and socially destructive things while themselves being very efficient in maximizing their self-interest.
0: But why is it that in all those places, the same incentives exist, whether you're talking about sports or you're talking about business, you're talking about government, so people can you know, do the wrong thing, but not everyone takes advantage of those incentives or, or, or follows those incentives. You know, there's- so this is a
2: really great question, like why some people do and why some people don't. Yes, so solve that for us. If you could solve that problem, we would have no problems. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, so what's the answer to that? Why is it that when a mob moves in one direction, some people are able to step outside it and say, this is wrong, let's not do that? I mean, because in most cases, what's happening, I mean, the financial crisis, again, a very good example, everybody pretty much is following these bad incentives. And it's really only a handful of people who are in the inside who say, "Now nah, let's not do this. And if they do say it, they, get, they tend to get trampled. But the quality in the person who behaves well, even when the world's paying him to behave badly, I'd say, you know, this is going to sound trite, but if there's one kind of uh unifying trait in the characters i've written about who sort of stand apart uh it's they still hear their mama's voice in their heads (laughs) they were sort of they haven't become so detached from who they were when they were little kids when their mom was trying to raise them and their dad was trying to raise them that they 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 hear that voice and they kind of like say no that's the closest thing i can find to an answer to the problem it's like raise them well and stay in your in their heads So it's basic stuff. Very basic stuff. And you know what's the other other interesting thing is, especially, you know, let's take another case, like the Flash Boys story, where you've got essentially the stock market getting rigged. Thank you, stock exchanges, uh, who figure out that they can make more money uh, selling advantages to a handful of privileged people, the high-speed traders, uh, than they can just matching buyers and sellers in a neutral way. And this whole elaborate ecosystem gets generated really to basically fleece ordinary investors, to skim off the trades of ordinary investors. And then you have a couple of people inside of Royal Bank of Canada who find out what's going on, and instead of joining in the party, they decide to set up an honest exchange. You know, why do they do that? And it's the funny thing is, it's such a stark case of sort of like private sector heroism. You would think that the people who do it are self-consciously heroic, are self-consciously moralistic or righteous. But getting those guys to say anything nice about themselves is extremely difficult. They're very uncomfortable if you start talking about them. Well, that's very funny. It's just sort of like how they naturally were. They don't like to, th- they don't like to think of themselves as the
0: good people. What was funny about that is you first said that the corrupt people don't think of themselves as corrupt. The good people don't think of now themselves as... Now I'm saying as... <laughs> the
2: good people don't think of themselves as the good people. You know, it's... So people just do. It, because, because anybody who's really good isn't spending a lot of time dwelling on his own goodness. So it's about habit and good parenting. I think, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think some people, you must have run across this in your previous life, a lot of people get into bad situations or do bad things because they've got some hole to fill. There's a neediness about them. And a lot of the characters who I've admired, who stood against corrupt or inefficient or broken systems are people who don't actually have a great neediness like they didn't need me to write a book about them that uh, when I smell someone like really wants me to write a book about them is when I lose interest so all my characters have been kind of like wary and different right they don't care all that much what i'm writing they're not asking me to see the manuscript none of that because they really sort of like they have some detachment from themselves and and they are who they are they know who they are and and they aren't uh, they aren't looking for the world to to tell them that who they are. Is that
0: confidence or is that just um, being comfortable in your own skin or is it's that the kind same of a, thing?
2: You know, it's a combination of things. I think it's related to confidence, but it's a sort of self-possession. You know, some people seem sort of self-possessed. Like I can remember when I was in, must have been like middle school when I heard a teacher refer to one of my classmates as self-possessed. And I thought, what the hell is that? And then I kind of looked it up and I thought, well, I, I want to be that. I don't think I've ever quite gotten there, but you meet people who just sort of like, they just, there's a kind of armor around them. And Billy Beans this way, Brad Katsuyama's this way. A lot of the guys in in the big short are are this way. And it enables them to sort of stand back from the world a little bit, rather than do the things the world is encouraging them to do that might not be so good. I'm going to play this portion of the podcast for my
0: daughter, who's 17, because I have called her. Self possessed, and so I want her to appreciate how much of a compliment
2: <laughs> it's a huge that compliment. that is. I mean, it's like one of those qualities that I mean, it sort of might be my favorite quality uh, in a person because it leads to all these other things. It leads to not getting swept up in the moods of the moment, and it it leads to kindness towards people who are sort of ostracized and on the outside. It leads yeah. to it leads to generosity because you it's just kind of an, an awareness because you're not when you're not self possessed when you're sort of looking for the world to tell you who you are and looking at the world for constant affirmation, looking at the world to fill you up because you've got this hole inside you, you just cease to notice much, I think.
0: And you just do, right. And just one more point on this, then we'll move on to your book. So self-possession is different from courage because some people have said famously that courage is the most important quality because other good qualities spring from that and good behaviors spring from that. But it's not courage. Courage is something, it sounds like you're saying is too um, self referential and too self conscious self possession is just you don't need other folks and so you have the clearer path and you go and do the right thing you know as opposed to having to put on sort of a brave air of of fearlessness, which is what we think of courage being
2: yeah well I think people right for a start they sort of misunderstand courage in the first place as an absence of fear when we're, courage really is a sort of overcoming a fear, and courage is a it can be there sometimes and not there other times in the strangest ways. I mean, like in the Red Badge of Courage, the, the, the protagonist is a hero one time and a coward the next, and it's the same character. Right. And I think that's probably, I bet, I bet people who've spent a lot of time in battle have seen this, that, you know, you don't never know what's going to provoke courage in a person. But so you're, the answer is correct, but I think, you know, you're probably more likely to be brave in situations if you're also self-possessed. I think that's a good analysis. So your book, The Fifth Risk, explain to everyone what The Fifth Risk is. Let me explain it this way, how the, how I came up with the title. Twice when I was working on the book, which is about essentially the, the risks posed by the Trump mismanagement of the federal government, I asked people to, to list for me the top five risks they were worried about. Once it was in the White House and once it was in the Energy Department. And the f- first time a woman in the National Security Council said you know, it was like terrorist attack with a nuclear weapon, a pandemic, two natural disasters at once that overwhelmed the country. And she got to five and she couldn't think of the fifth. And I thought that was kind of cool that she had had four in her mind, but she couldn't think of what the fifth was. And I got to the energy department. I was talking to the chief risk officer of the department of energy, a fellow named John McWilliams, who'd come out of the private sector, was a Goldman Sachs banker. And he'd, he'd cataloged all the risks in the energy department. I said, give me your top five. And he said, you know, n- Korean nuclear capabilities, uh, the Iran deal falling apart, the electric grid going down or being attacked. And and the other one was, I think, a loose nuke or something having to do with the nuclear arsenal, which the Energy Department oversees. And I said, what's the fifth? And he said, I, it took him a long time to think of it. And then he finally says program management. But what I actually thought of the fr- fifth risk as, it's not as program management. I thought it was the, the thing that's hard to think about. Because the federal government, when you step back from it, is managing this vast portfolio of risks, many of them existential, and at any given time, we may be focused on one or two of them, but this bureaucracy is managing many of them, and it's the ones that we're not paying enough attention to, the ones that are going to get us in trouble. So that's what I thought of it as. I thought of it as the, the risks we are not paying sufficient attention to. Well, if you can't think of them, then how do you pay attention to it? Well, you can think of them. You just, you know, you don't. You just don't spend a lot of time thinking about what happens if the whole, the three billion dollar research and development budget inside of the Department of Agriculture is so mismanaged that we don't have a food supply thirty years from now. You just, you don't think of what happens if um, the people who test our nuclear arsenal. Don't do their jobs well, or if some loose nuke is floating around Eastern Europe and the person in the energy department who's supposed to run down loose nukes is taken off the job because Trump thinks it's not important. I mean, they just, you know, it's one thing after another. It's not that you're not thinking about it, it's that the system as a whole isn't thinking about it properly. And I think this is the problem we face is that we've got a unique in my lifetime and probably in the history of the country. You've got someone in the White House who is absolutely ignorant of the government he's meant to be managing.
0: Well, I mean, is it true that the fifth risk, you know, given your um, nomenclature, tends to be the long-term risk, it's the easier one to ignore, not because it's less dangerous. I, I,
2: I think that's a really good point. And I think that this is, it's these, the reason the guy at the energy department said, program management, was—he was th- what he was thinking was, we have these very long-term problems that we're managing. I mean, the most obvious one is climate change, but but he was thinking more narrowly than that. But very long term programs we're managing that require constant attention, and they aren't sexy or dramatic. But if they go wrong, they can go very wrong. And I, you know, as an example, he offered the Hanford waste cleanup in eastern Washington. The United States government, in during World War II, created a plutonium manufacturing business. The plutonium for the bombs that were dropped in Japan. And they were working so fast that they paid no attention to the waste product. And millions and millions of gallons of incredibly toxic stuff was poured into into the soil on a site that's kind of 600 square miles. And there are plumes of just lethal radioactive waste moving towards the Columbia River. And the Department of Energy spends $3 billion a year trying to both clean it up and prevent the stuff from getting into the river and if you ask you know these people who are doing it honestly uh, how long this is going to take and what it's going to cost they say a hundred billion dollars in a hundred years and that's it's it's an awesome awesome task and the cost of not doing it well is is very very high but it's like nothing much happens day to day so no one pays it much attention right. and in
0: the incentive structure you spoke about earlier means that you don't get a lot of credit for it if you deal with it now because nobody's really thinking about the problem anyway. And so if things go fine, nobody's being incentivized to take care of those things. Now, to the extent you are not self-possessed and you care about doing things because people will pat you on the back. There are no pats on the back for that kind of thing. Well,
2: so this is a really good point that, that just generally our attitude towards our federal workforce is so screwed up because all we do is abuse them. There's lots of downside, no upside. And it, this, ha- this creates several problems for the country but apropos of your th- this example there's a fellow in colorado who has handled a similar problem uh in rocky flax colorado it wasn't as big a waste cleanup but i think he brings it in at like 15 billion dollars under budget and 30 years ahead of schedule something <laughs> that if he'd done it in the private sector he'd be a billionaire he should he should build hotels and no one knows his name <laughs> i mean and i mean no one's ever heard of him the, there are people in the civil service who perform extraordinary feats and no one hears their names because there's no real upside they don't get paid a lot of money nobody pats them on the back and of course what this does is on the level of the individual is it creates huge risk aversion if all you're going to do is be punished for the bad things and not rewarded for the good things you're not going to take risks you should take and you see problems that are caused by this i mean the department of energy well actually across the government there are interesting investment funds uh funds that are not big piles of money but funds that are designed to channel money into very long-term research that industry won't do so in the department of energy this would be in the energy space and these funds have helped create the solar power industry and the wind industry but these funds the people who manage them they're supposed to take the kind of risks that will fail half the time or more and they don't they manage it too responsibly kind of thing because if it, if something fails they end up in the newspaper you know one of the reasons i wrote the book maybe the biggest reason i wrote the book is i came away from my travels inside of the trump administration awed by the caliber of the person who was in the civil service i i didn't have any sense of who these people would be and it was incredible to me over and over to find these people who were very mission-driven, who could be making a lot more money in the private sector, but who saw the crying need for person of quality to be in these job, very important jobs in the federal government. And And I thought, you know, these are the best among us, and they need to be celebrated. And the country needs to change its narrative about who these people are and why they're there and what we think of them because otherwise we're all doomed. Otherwise, essentially we're gonna get the government we think we have. And we're gonna get a government that's horrible.
0: I love the fact that this book is quote unquote, a love letter to federal workers, many of whom I know. But so who's the guy who should have said, let's rake the forest floors to prevent wildfires? Well,
2: that's funny. So Robert Bonney, who makes a very brief appearance in the book, I mean, this shows you how, this is an example of the fifth risk. I'm wandering through the Department of Agriculture asking people basically what do we need to know about this place w- what are the risks we need to worry about and i get to robert bonnie who ran the forest service uh, and the forest service is inside the department of agriculture and he says to me wildfires and he says this is a really really big deal and nobody's paying attention to it and this is two years ago yeah and i i went out to the wildfire, the center of, for fighting wildfires is out in Boise, Idaho. I went and spent a day there. I thought I was going to write about that. I thought, nah, this will never happen. It's, and I just kind of, I kind of dropped it. So all you have is this kind of one line. He says, wildfires, and then I move on from him. You know, that was something that we obviously were not paying sufficient attention to, and we're, we're paying a price. So he he did have things that he thought we should do. But he also had a sense that the Trump administration was so inept that they weren't, there was no one, to, no one even to tell these things to.
0: So you start out the book talking about the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and how all this effort had been made and binders were being filled with memos and people were documenting things so that there was a transfer of expertise and a giving of information about ongoing projects so there would be continuity. And Chris Christie sort of appointed himself the head of the transition and then it all went to crap how that happen
2: yes well this is i think a story that can't be told too often or in too much detail because <laughs> by law both the outgoing president and the incoming administration are required to spend many 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 months before the election preparing for this transfer of power because you know our our government is not like other democracies it's run by it's run by political appointees. There isn't a permanent civil service at the top. At the top are 4,000 people the president appoints and these people have to manage these places. And very often they're they're not suited they're appointed for political reasons and they're not terribly suited to the jobs. In the Trump case that's an, that's very true, but they can learn, right? And that's why the outgoing administration spends takes a thousand people, smart people, and has them spend 6 months preparing to teach the people coming in what they're dealing with, because most of these things are not ideological matters. Right, You know, the Center for Disease Control is going to tell you how they dealt with the Zika virus so that if it happens again, you at least know how they dealt with it. And it's that sort of thing. It's their technical matters. And the Trump administration... I mean, it was really extraordinary. There was a transition team, hundreds of people waiting to go in the day after the election. And the day after the election, Trump fired the whole operation. So there was absolutely not a soul there. And so you had this strange picture of people waiting across the administration on the Obama side, in the Department of Energy, Agriculture, Treasury, Defense, everywhere, for people to show up so they could say, this is what the government's doing. And nobody shows up. And it's so bad that, so I finished the fifth risk. I finished writing the book in, oh, August. So I probably got my last, I went and got the briefings, right? So in July, I probably had my last briefing. It it was a serious thing. It was in the National Weather Service and nobody had been given the briefing before. I found myself over and over getting these briefings that no one had been given. Yeah, you should go into the government. (laughs) You probably could solve a lot of stuff. Well, I now, you know, what I do know is that if you have a willingness to learn and listen, you're already better qualified than most of the people he's put in there. Because they didn't, eat, not only did they not know anything, they were dismissive and contemptuous. They don't care to know anything. So there's no way you can go in and run the operation like this. I'm no, I would be no good at it. I'm, I have no administrative abilities. I'm just a but Well, runner. I don't know about that. But I, could, but, but I know 100 people who would do it great. And it's, the, it's sort of like the knowledge is there. You just have to want it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you say an interesting thing. You say, look, there were all these people who were prepared to teach. And they had a curriculum, you know, in terms of those binders and memos and everything else. But that's not enough. The people who you're trying to teach have to be educable.
2: That's exactly right. And, you know, they tell themselves, and I'm sure their supporters tell themselves, oh, what can we learn from the Obama administration? Or what can we learn from the deep state, these permanent civil servants? As if they've got some whole other plan about how to run the society. When the truth is they've basically got no other plan for how to run the society. And they really do need to know all this stuff.
0: You wouldn't have this issue in city government, right? So you have one outgoing administration in a big city in the north, let's say, in an incoming administration. You would think the incoming administration would want to know how it is you clean snow effectively. Because that's the down, you know, as the old adage goes in New York, if you can't clear the streets of the snow, you're, you're not going to get reelected. Why is it different in the federal system where people think of this as the deep state and think they, they know better and they don't have to learn from other folks? When, as you say, so many things that happen in the government, whether it's forest fires, or preventing disease or anything else, is not at all partisan or ideological. It's, I think
2: it's as simple as it's really complicated and it's a long way away. Everybody's got the city right under their nose. If the trash doesn't get picked up, you notice that day. Right. Uh, but if underbrush isn't being cleared in national parks or if uh, the nuclear weapons aren't being properly assembled, you might not find out for years. So it's just, I think it's a matter of the public's attention. And I think there's also this, this other problem of the whole country needs a civics lesson that that we've civics is just the idea that you're supposed to understand how your federal government works has vanished from the educational system and you know i found I mean, I live in Berkeley, California, and I'm surrounded by people who are obsessed with national politics. I mean, I was so obsessed with national politics that they might not notice that their garbage didn't get picked up that day. I mean, I, was gonna, I, have, a file, I have a file of a piece I've never written. It's called, Why Does My City Council Have a Foreign Policy? And so here, of all places, people you would think— Would really know about how the government works but when i would be at lunches or dinners or wandering around the streets of berkeley and people would ask what i'm working on i'd say uh oh you know i'm writing something about the energy department and basically i get a blank stare back like what does that do and you know oh yeah they're in charge of the oil reserves or something but in fact it's the department of nuclear weapons and i didn't you know one of the reasons i was so engaged with the subject is i didn't know I had no idea what went on in the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Commerce. So I think we've had such a long period of relative peace and prosperity that there has not been the urgency to know. You, um,
0: you make a very important distinction that I want to make sure we crystallize even a little bit more in the time remaining. And that is, it's not just that people come in and do a bad job being in charge of certain things, whether government agencies or companies or anything else, because they lack expertise it's also because they lack this, this will to learn and they have a disdain for it. And so one, one of the departments you talk about is the Department of Energy, which is run by Rick Perry. And I just want to read you my favorite description of the heads of that department from the New York Times maybe a couple of years ago, and then ask you a question. And they're describing Rick Perry's predecessors uh, in an article in the Times by Coral Davenport and David Sanger. I should give them credit because it's one of the best juxtapositions that I've seen. Before Mr. Moniz, the job belonged to Stephen Chu, a physicist who won a Nobel Prize. For Mr. Moniz, the future of nuclear science has been a lifelong obsession. He spent his early years working at the Stanford Linear Accelerator. Mr. Perry studied animal husbandry and led cheers at Texas A&M University. So making clear that he was not as qualified, was not a Nobel Prize winner, but couldn't Rick Perry or someone like him still be good at the helm of an agency about which he or she does not have a lot of expertise if they had some different quality?
2: Absolutely. You know, I don't think you have to be a nuclear physicist to run the Department of Energy. And in some ways, it might be a little bit of a handicap because you might get too much in the weeds and stuff when you should delegate. But what you do have to have is a basic respect for the institution and respect for the, for the knowledge. And Rick Perry, I mean, my God, this man as a presidential candidate got on stage as governor <laughs> of Texas and called for the elimination of the Department of Energy, and then couldn't remember its name. In a public forum, he he said we needed to get rid of this agency, and he clearly didn't know what it did. And then when he gets to Washington and gets offered to run it, he goes and he's told what it does, and he goes, oh, I was wrong. Sorry about that. I mean, that should be disqualifying right there. And one of the things that has surprised me about many of the Trump appointees, and Perry is an example of this, so if you were genuinely patriotic, if you genuinely love the country, and someone offers you a job that you know you're not qualified to do, you don't just take it. You should say no. Right. You should say, actually, I don't know anything about this, and I embarrass myself on a public stage calling for the elimination of this place. Really, someone who, has a, who can start with a cleaner slate should come in and do this. But I do think, having said that, it's absolutely true that someone who's got great managerial ability and ability to get their minds around things very quickly and get to the nub of complicated matters very quickly and find good people around him, I mean, that person could do a great job. What about uh, Wilbur Ross at the head of commerce? He's 83 years old and falling asleep in meetings. (laughs) I mean... It's that's okay. Sometimes (laughs) it's okay. Well, all right, let's go. We'll take it one step further. (laughs) He's not only falling asleep in meetings, but when people come to him and say, you know, Wilbur, this isn't actually a a department of commerce that, you know, it's not, it's not allowed to do business. And it actually isn't even all that important in the trade negotiations, which I think he thinks that's what he's going to do. What it actually is, is it's a department of Data. It, it's the census, it collects the economic statistics, and the whole weather service is inside of it. All the weather data is in it. All the climate data is in it. And and he says, yeah, I'm not all that interested in that stuff. 90%, 95% of the department's budget is basically the the collection and analysis of data. So he's not interested in it. Uh, that, that's not, it's not a promising start.
0: Let me hit a couple of things quickly before you have to go. You, you have said lots of different people try to analyze what it is that Trump does to institutions. And you've called him a trust-devouring machine. You know, he takes things that people still have trust in and undermines them, institutions. We talk about the press. We talk about the government. We talk about, you know, folks who are in the civil service. Um, he's done it with the with the media, as you've written. What does that mean for him and risk to financial
2: markets? And as we tape this, it's not going so well on Wall Street. Um, he was very lucky to inherit a healthy economy in a kind of a good spot. To answer your question, I'll tell you what I'm most worried about. And it's that he really does have a nose for, he doesn't just devour the trust, he sort of feeds on it in some odd sick way. And if you look around and you say, well, where is there still quite a bit of trust left in the society that he might undermine? The natural place is the dollar and and treasury securities. And it's very easy to imagine him When things get bad, when uh, the stock market's doing poorly, when the economy starts to not look so good, when interest rates are going up and the deficit, again, we start talking about. It's amazing we're not talking about the deficit. But in any case, I can easily imagine him freelancing in some arena in Alabama. And he says, you know, they talk about the deficit, but who do we owe that money to? We owe it to the Chinese and they stole it. And he said, we don't have to pay that back. It would be so in character, and it would also be in character uh, of his audience, of his fans, to stand up and cheer. We're not going to pay the Chinese back. We owe them 2 or $3 trillion. They're sitting on all these treasury securities. And that, it's a, it's a hard technical matter just to selectively default like that, and probably you couldn't do it, but you wouldn't even have to. That, the minute he found a political market for that view— he could create a catastrophe, a financial catastrophe. That, I worry, when people ask me, where does the next financial crisis come from? I think it comes from Trump. And, and the question is how, and this is one path. So is, and, that, a
0: fifth, is that a fifth risk or is that a fourth risk?
2: No, it's totally a fifth risk because nobody's, <laughs> right. as far as I know, I'm the only one talking about it. Right. but, but well, it's, I'll
0: start talking about it too.
2: Play it out in your head, Preet, because you know yeah. what happens is that the minute that, that you have questions about the credit worthiness of the United States and about uh, the soundness of the dollar... I mean, about people wanting to hold the dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, this is the natural thing that follows from the U.S. ceasing to be the leader of the free world. I mean, why? There's no good reason why we should be the financial leader of the free world. And I I think we're not that far away from that kind of scenario. And And it's a different sort of financial crisis that provokes because you know, in the, in the 2008 financial crisis, you had an entity that could step in and calm everything down. And it was the United States government. Right. When you no longer have that as a backstop, what happens?
0: All you have is kindling. Yeah. Michael Lewis, congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on the new book. And thank you for spending some time with us.
2: Thanks Preet. Bye-bye.
0: My thanks again to Michael Lewis. I hope you found, as I did, that this conversation about the need for talented and enthusiastic public servants in our government was worth revisiting. So it's Thanksgiving week, and last week we asked you to call in and let us know what you're grateful for this year. It's been an intense year, to say the least, and there have been a lot of things to get discouraged about. But my view always is there is so much more to be encouraged about, and a lot of you felt the same way. I can say, for example, that I'm, as always, grateful for my family, grateful for my friends, grateful for this podcast and the team that helps put this out, and I'm grateful for all of you listeners. And I've gotten to speak to some really inspiring people who gave me hope for the country. As I've always said, when bad things happen, you see what good people are made of. And that happens time and time again in the history of our country. So I take great encouragement from all the people who are standing up, speaking their minds, standing up for the truth, deciding to become active who may not have been that way for a long time. That gives me great hope and great comfort, and I'm really thankful for it. Now let's listen to what the Stay Tuned community is grateful for this year.
1: This is Leslie Primo calling from York, Pennsylvania. This is Rebecca Shore, and I'm calling from Jacksonville, Florida. Joan from Clark, New Jersey. Sonia Sukowski, and I'm from Castro Valley, California. Judy Giordano here from Chicago. My name is Ruth Mayer. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. My name is Chris Baglow from Texas. Hi,
0: Preet. This is
1: Paula calling from LA.
0: My name is Greg in Napa, California.
1: This is Lauren in Palo Alto. I'm Nancy from Coral Gables, Florida. I'm an old chick, uh, went through the Watergate, uh, old hippie. This is Carolyn from Boston. I'm thankful for the bravery and integrity of the professionals who testified in the impeachment hearings. Mr. Kent, Mr. Taylor, uh, Ms. Jovanovich, Fiona Hill, and of course, Lieutenant Colonel Dinman. I'm so thankful that we have such competent, smart, patriotic people working on behalf of the United States in the State Department and elsewhere. I'm
2: thankful that I managed to stay sober this year and last year. And the year before that.
1: What I'm most grateful for right now is that I will celebrate 36 years without booze and all the other stuff the day before Thanksgiving. I am thankful for the chance to give thanks to those I love. I was recently at a funeral of someone who passed unexpectedly, and it struck me that we were all giving thanks too late. So thank you. I'm grateful for two new nephews. And the way our family's coming together around one that's adopted and one born to my 52-year-old brother's wife. I was recently diagnosed with cancer, not real serious at all, but I happily live alone and found that the support I'm getting from friends and family was just overwhelming. People that I hadn't heard from in a very long time. So as crazy as things are, the people in this world are still really, really uh, wonderful and loving. I work for the NIH and I am so, so thankful for their work and the advances of biomedical research. Personally, I donated my kidney to my older brother five years ago and he is doing well. Also, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and she is on uh, cutting edge monoclonal antibody prescription, which is basically keeping her alive. So thankful for the advances of biomedical science and research just in general. I'm grateful for firefighters and new strategies to avoid the catastrophic loss of life to fire in California this year. I am thankful that Trump fired you and we got you. I'm grateful for you, for Ann Milgram and your show. I love Ann's extraordinary giggle. When the two of you get to laughing and you can't stop, I can't stop either. I'm grateful for Stay Tuned every week especially the show on 9-11 with Brenda Berkman. My very favorite episode has to be your interview with Bill Browder. The death of Sergei Magnitsky made me cry and made me read Bill Browder's book. I am grateful that I have a family that I love and adore, because besides you and the Lawfare blog, And Cafe Insider, it's probably the only thing that's keeping me sane. Your decency comes through every conversation. You kind of give me hope that the best and the brightest really are still with us in America, even if they're not leading the country. Run, free, run. I'm grateful to live on a beautiful planet with so many people who are working hard to protect it.
0: What I'm most grateful for are all of the little things in my life that have helped to make my life easier. Life is Hard for everyone to some extent, but it can always be harder. And so it is the little things that happen every day that the people around you do, uh, what your family helps with, things that just make life just a little bit easier. So I'm very grateful for all those things that happen on a day-to-day basis. And I wish them for everyone throughout the holidays and in 2020 as well.
1: We're all better than the worst thing we've ever done, as Brian Stevenson says. And I'm grateful to understand more about engaging those worst moments and finding our way back into right relationship with our best selves and each other. Thank you so much and keep up the wonderful work. I love both of your shows. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for all you do. And I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Bye.
0: If you like what we do, Julia Doyle, Carla Pirini, David Curlander, Calvin Lord, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.